0: Hey cuz, welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs, and today, we've got a listener-inspired episode. How good it is! Hi there, I'm Claude Call, and I hope you're listening to this somewhere outside, because it is just lovely out this week. I've got some trivia right after this. In the Key of Q is a new podcast series featuring music and conversation with queer musicians from around the world. Musicians like Soulful Ty McKinney, musicians like suburban pop king Matt Fischel, and musicians like rapper The Izzam. That's In the Key of Q, available on all the usual podcast providers. I have really been digging the insights that this show brings, so go check it out. It is trivia time, and I know I just did one of these, but it was too surprising not to share with ye. So, according to the folks over at The Sound of Vinyl, who appear to live for counting stats like this, what is the song by Queen that has been covered more times than any other? I'm going to share that entire top ten with you at the end of the show. Before I get rolling on this episode, let me get a little housekeeping out of the way. I already mentioned this to the newsletter crowd, so if you're a subscriber, you can skip forward about 15 seconds. Here's the thing, I never intend to take breaks as long as the one I just did, but life often gets in the way, and I do thank you for your forbearance. That said, in the future, I'm just going to make a point of taking a few weeks off between the end of May and the beginning of June because I know my work life is going to be extra crazy then. That's all I need to say about that for now. So I know I promised something connected to our previous episode, but an opportunity came up during my research that convinced me I should hold off for a couple of weeks. In the meantime, this episode was inspired by an email exchange I had with a listener named um, Marie. Now, it's spelled M-A-R-I, and I'm not sure whether it's pronounced Mary or something more like Marie, but I'm going with Marie for the moment, and for a reason. At any rate, we were talking about losing a parent. For her, it was her dad, and for me, it was my mom. And the bottom line is that they both had a love of pop music from that era. My mother, in particular, liked the Top 40 radio in the 60s and 70s, and so I was you know, pretty much immersed in it as a kid, and it naturally led to this show. About six months before my mother died unexpectedly, she told me that she wanted the song Everlasting Love played at her funeral, and between that conversation and the fact that as I record this, we're closing in on the anniversary of my mother's death, well, I realize there's no better time to commemorate the memory of my mother, Mary, and also no listener, Marie's dad. As so frequently happens when I tell the story behind a song, it becomes necessary to wind the clock back sometime to before the song was a big hit. And this is no exception. Everlasting Love was the brainchild of Buzz Kaysen and Mac Gaydon, and they wrote the song specifically for Robert Knight in 1967, but the story actually goes back to when Gaiden was a small child. Gaydon has said repeatedly, that he wrote part of the melody when he was five years old, fooling around on his grandmother's piano. The party site specifically is the counterpoint that the uh, backup singers are doing and that you hear being played on the organ or the strings, depending on the version you're listening to. Gayden says he always knew he was going to use it somewhere. And in this song, he found his opportunity. Now, in an interview with Songwriting Magazine, Gayden says that he was playing with a band at a fraternity house at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And when they were on a break, they stepped outside and they heard a fantastic voice singing from down the street. They ran down to see who it was, and it turned out to be Robert Knight. Gaydon told Knight that he had to get him into a studio, and Knight was, of course, suspicious. But it turned out that there was a connection between their families. Um, And so Knight agreed to come in. He introduced Knight to Buzz Kaysen, and they put Everlasting Love together very quickly, especially for Knight's voice. But, as you've heard many times on the show, Everlasting Love was originally meant to be the B-side. The intended A was a song called The Weeper, and that song, that song felt so hard by the wayside that I couldn't tell you for sure whether it was ever released. Everlasting Love became the A-side, and the B-side for that original release was was a track called Somebody's Baby, which is not the same song that became a hit for Jackson Brown some years later. At any rate, the uh, track has some interesting sounds on it, especially for its time. For instance, the string-like sounds on the record are actually a Farfisa organ, probably their compact deluxe model, although that's just a guess on my part. They put a lot of echo on it to give it a bigger sound, and then Casey K- used his bandmates, uh, Kenny Buttry on drums, Norbert Putman uh, playing the bass, and Charlie McCoy, along with Cason himself playing guitars. Cason also sang backups along with Carol Montgomery. Now, Robert Knight recalled that even though it was written specifically for his voice, he didn't sing the song exactly as written. He thought that it was uh, a little bit too fast, so he slowed it down a bit with that beat-and-a-half pattern you hear him doing, almost a staccato kind of thing. That changed the pace of the verses, and that's the thing that Night thought got the whole thing off the ground. The song was immediately popular. In fact, by the time it hit the Billboard Hot 100 in September of 1967, it was already number one in Philadelphia and in Detroit. Essentially, it was popping up in different markets at different times, which actually made it tougher to promote. Eventually, it did peak at number 13 on the Billboard chart and number 14 on the Billboard uh, R&B chart. Aha, you say, but what about elsewhere in the world? Well, it did make it to number 19 in the UK, but the catch is that it didn't do that until it was re-released there in 1974. So why didn't it chart the first time around? I'm glad you asked. During that decade of roughly 1964 to 1974, it wasn't uncommon for artists in the UK to knock out a record that was gaining popularity in the US. According to Buzz Kaysen, song publisher Al Gallico suggested that he give the song to Gallico's partners at the Phillips Company in England. Kaysen, not quite understanding what that meant, agreed and Phillips ran it to CBS Records there. They initially offered it to the band Marmalade, which turned it down as being too poppy. And a band called Love Affair got a hold of it. But here's the thing. They were in a huge hurry to get the record cut and released because Robert Knight's version was about to get released in the UK. So when the first recording didn't come out the way they wanted it to, well, in the name of expediency, they hired session musicians, including a 40-piece orchestra, all of whom could just come in and play immediately without having to learn the song. And only lead singer Mike Ellis performed on that recording. The record went to number one on the UK singles chart in February 1968, and it held that slot for two weeks. The track was also a top 20 song in several European nations that spring. Now this created some possible controversy because when they appeared on a television show with Jonathan King, King asked them directly whether the band had actually played on Everlasting Love, but they knew the question was coming, so they'd already admitted it was just Ellis with Session Musicians. It became a minor nuisance for the band, but it didn't really dent their popularity, and in fact... They were the biggest-selling band in the U.K. for the year 1968, with the exception of the Beatles. The fact is, in the end, most of the Love Affairs hit singles were created the same way, although the rest of the band played on the B-sides and the album tracks. But those album tracks, they were also a departure from the sound of the hit singles. Oddly enough, for all their popularity in Europe, it does not appear as though Love Affair had any hits in the United States. so let's jump ahead to 1973 it was in october of that year that carl carlton stepped into the creative workshop studio in berry hill tennessee he had chosen to sing everlasting love and when they tried it at quadraphonic studios in nashville it didn't work out so they went to creative workshop to have another go at it with a different crew Now, what Carlton didn't know is that Buzz Kasin owned Creative Workshop Studios, although he didn't have any uh, contribution to the record itself. Anyway, Carlton didn't know the song from either Robert Knight or Love Affair. He had heard a cover done by David Ruffin on his 1969 solo album, My Whole World Ended. Uh, The recording was released as a B-side to the song I Want to Be Your Main Squeeze, but then it was given a more disco-like remix and re-released in the summer of 1974. It got a lot of club play before finally breaking into the Hot 100 in September, and it peaked at number six in November. It was also a top 20 hit in Canada. Ah, you say, but what about Europe? Well, Remember I told you Robert Knight's version was re-released and became a hit in 1974. Yep, Knight essentially pulled the reverse card on Carlton. And this is the version that tends to dominate the oldie stations, at least in the U.S. But that's not the end of the saga for Everlasting Love. In the summer of 1981, the song was reworked as a duet and covered by Rex Smith and Rachel Sweet. The song also got an additional verse which has no credit on it, but it did get the approval of Gaydon and Casey. The track appeared on albums by both Smith and Sweet, and the song peaked at number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100. That was Smith's second and final trip to the top 40, and Sweet's one and only. It was also a minor hit in Australia and in the UK, but it was a top 10 in Denmark and Switzerland, so there's that. I have to say, though, I was listening to a lot of top 40 music around that time, I didn't really remember this recording until I heard it again preparing for this show, at which point I had a little bit of a, oh yeah, moment. Related to that version, German singer Zondra did a cover that was actually based on the Rex Smith-Rachel Sweet version, although she grew up listening to the Love Affair version of the song. At any rate, the record was released in September of 1987 and it was a top 10 hit throughout most of Europe, but was not a big hit in the UK where it only peaked at number 88. I remixed it a little bit better the next year and it was that remake uh, which charted briefly in the United States. I'm going to link the video to this version at the website because it's kind of fun, kind of meta and kind of 80s. And tell me Sandra didn't have like a little bit of a Natalie Wood thing going on around there. Gloria Estefan technoed up the song for her 1994 album, Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, and released it as a single in January of 1995. made it to number 27 on the Billboard Hot 100, but it topped out the dance club play chart and it was a pretty big hit in Europe. If you check out the video, you will notice that Estefan is nowhere to be found in it, and that's because she was pregnant with her second child at the time. Instead, what you get is five drag performers all giving it their best Gloria Estefan treatment from various stages in her career. Now those aren't the only covers, not by a long shot. I didn't even mention that U2 covered the song in 1989 and that one charted nicely despite being a B-side. There was also a version recorded by British actress Rebecca Wheatley which made it to number 5 in the UK. All of this means that Everlasting Love is only the second song to chart top 40 in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and the 90s in the U.S and the only song in the UK to be top 50 for the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And in fact, in every case except the 80s where it made it to number 45, it was in the top 20. And now it's time to answer our trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you which track by Queen has been covered more than any other. On reflection, it occurred to me that nearly all of them were a little bit surprising because like Johnny Cash, last episode, in my head, most Queen songs are pretty tough to cover. As Sandra Diaz-Twine has said numerous times on Survivor, The Queen stays Queen. Got that right. Let's look at the list. At number 10, with 23 covers, is Somebody to Love, which I thought would appear higher, but here we are. Tied with that one in the number 9 slot is I Want to Break Free. At number 8, with 25 covers, we have Who Wants to Live Forever. Number seven and number six each have 29 covers. Those would be Love of My Life and Another One Bites the Dust. The number five song is Under Pressure with 31 covers. Number four is Crazy Little Thing Called Love, which has been covered 40 times. Now, it makes sense for me that number three and number two appear together on the list because they're usually so tightly linked. But here's the odd part. We Will Rock You has been covered 53 times while We Are the Champions has been covered 60 times. And the Queen song that's been covered more times than any other, with 79 covers, it's Bohemian Rhapsody. I know, it's hard to believe that there could be a good cover of Bohemian Rhapsody, but I invite you to check out the version by Panic! at the Disco, which appeared in the soundtrack for the film Suicide Squad. There's also a recording of them performing it in concert that's kind of impressive, considering there is no room for editing and overdubs there. And that, my friend, is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you enjoy the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. And now, you can support the show over at patreon.com slash howgooditis. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thank you, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we look at a song that gets played a lot at weddings and I kind of wonder why. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. How good it is. Okay, I've seen my playback statistics, so it's pretty much just you and me now. How Good It Is is a labor of love and a lot of fun to produce, and I'm happy to see it growing, but the fact is, it costs me money to put this show out on the web, and as the number of listeners goes up, so do the costs. I pledged from the beginning that I would keep this an ad-free show, which means I'm bearing most of the cost myself. I hate asking for money, mostly because I'm not very good at it, but I'm asking you to consider becoming a patron of the show. For $5 a month, you would be helping me to maintain some of the costs of hosting the show and the website and all the subscription services that I belong to in order to get audio clips and research materials. If just 2% of my listeners become supporters of the show, that would just about cover most of my costs. And for that support, you'd get the weekly newsletter. That appears every week, whether there's a new show or not. Please take a look at patreon.com slash It Is, or if you'd rather not go through Patreon, Email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com and I'll outline some alternatives for you. And thanks for your help.